You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our reading tonight is from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us now, we pray, to understand it, that it would be life to us. We pray for blessing tonight, that by meditating on your word uh, this day, you might make us into flourishing trees, that we might take this word that you have given us tonight, and that we might meditate it not on it, not just for today, but day and night for the rest of our life. Might this psalm be the song of our heart tonight and this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Man, it is just really, really good to be with you every single Sunday, to sit under God's word, to pray with you, to sing these wonderful songs, to profess these wonderful uh, professions of faith. Uh, this is just the best hour and a half of the whole week. And I hope you're beginning to feel the same. Uh, I really mean it. My, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, uh, there's a couple of faces that I see out there that I haven't met. I'd love to meet you and say hello after the service. Uh, any member of our church would love to do the same, but uh, we'll be up at the front, Clint and I and some others. Uh, just come and say hi. We'd love to, to know you're here. Uh, last week, we finished up the book of Exodus, and now we're going to take a five-week interlude in the first five psalms before we get to Paul's letter to the Colossians at the end of March. I've been looking forward to getting to some of these psalms for a couple of reasons. One, I have never preached a psalm, ever. Like, not as a standalone sermon, nothing. Uh, So I just selfishly, I'm excited for like the theological and devotional time that it will require from me. So selfish reasons. But two, I think that uh, psalms are just dreadfully underused underutilized in the life of the church, in what we do individually and how we use them, pray them, sing them, meditate on them individually, but also uh, in the life of the church. And a lot of this might have to do with we're not quite sure what to do with them. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of the most famous phrases in the Bible come from the Psalms. Uh, many of the most, many, many of you have coffee mugs or like tapestries on your wall or embroidered throw pillows or something with phrases from the Psalms. Uh, But past the famous bits, there are like some really confusing parts as well. And not just like bouncing around from this Psalm, which is really clear, and that Psalm, which is really confusing, but within the same Psalm. Like consider Psalm 139. Maybe you have this on over your child's crib or something, where it says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Maybe you got some calligraphy on the wall uh, in the 
baby's nursery or something. That's in verse 13. My guess is you didn't keep going, though, all the way to verse 19 of Psalm 139, where David continues to say, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood. Depart from me. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So you might open Psalm 139 and be thinking, like, yeah, this is really good. This is warming my soul. And then get to that verse and like, is that even in the Bible? Should that be in the Bible? Well, come back in two weeks when we get to Psalm 3. Uh, It contains much of the same kind of language that appears in Psalm 139. Uh, This will be important for us to think through what to do with the category of those kinds of psalms. But I'm really looking forward to also... uh, to preach through some psalms, because I've been selfishly just looking really forward to just preaching Psalm 1. Uh, Over the past six months or so, it just keeps popping up in my own devotional life, uh, in books that I've been reading, in podcasts that I've been listening to. I've I've just been really, I've been benefiting a whole lot this week and just kind of synthesizing some of these thoughts. And not to mention just that in this week, I have heard from many of you uh, from many of you, that this is like one of your favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, Seth was up here putting his drums together and was just spouting out. He memorized it when, where are you, Seth, when you were like sixth grade or something. Uh, I asked Stephanie to read this psalm earlier in the week. She was like, I've been praying this psalm for my husband when we, since we first started dating. Uh, and so this psalm uh, carries unique uh, weight for many of us. Um, So I've been looking forward to just synthesizing a lot of what I've been hearing from you and from hearing from others. Uh, But before we get into the meat of Psalm 1, I want to just spend a couple minutes on what the Psalms are, what we must do with them. We're not going to get a comprehensive introduction of them tonight. We'll divide it up over several weeks in the next few weeks. But for tonight, at the most basic level, Psalms are merely, maybe not merely, but they are ancient Hebrew poetry. Meaning, just like we read poetry in English differently than we read like a blog post or a novel, uh, we ought to have different antennae up. We ought to be working with different sets of tools when we read the Psalms or when we read the Proverbs or Song of Solomon or Ecclesiastes or something, different tools than when we are reading Exodus or Colossians or Matthew. The language of poetry is meant to be read, to be reread, to be reread, to be meditated upon, to be like uh, just mixed around in our imaginations. It's kind of like you, you might think of poetry like listening to a radio theater production of a play, whereas uh, maybe reading the difference between ra- listening to a radio theater production rather than just like going to the play and sitting in the audience. When you go to the play and you're sitting in the audience, you're stimulated uh, visually and audibly, whereas when you listen to the radio theater, it only gives you the audio, leaving the rest of it up to your imagination. It's kind of like if you have a really, really good play-by-play announcer for like a baseball team or something, it's almost better to just listen to a baseball game on the radio. Your imagination takes hold and starts to fill in gaps and add color. So, like Shakespeare could have said, like, hey, I think you're really pretty. Instead, he said, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And then the imagination takes off. Uh, This is what poetry does, especially when then put to song. And so, we can say that the Psalms are ancient Hebrew poetry, but nearly all of them uh, are 
put to music. Now, we don't have the music. We don't have the songs that David or others would have put this to, the melodies that uh, they were put to, but this is why it's good for Matt Jones to put Psalm 1 to music for us to let the words of the Psalms to then take even further root in our own souls as we like take them with us through song. That's, this Psalm is going to go with you more deeply because of the song that we just sang. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, and so this is what the Psalms are meant to do. Not to just be read once or to learn some bit of theological knowledge and then move on for the rest of your day, but to be like explored around into. There, there's like a, a world that we are entering into just to just imaginatively explore. Okay, so we'll have much more to think through in the coming weeks with the ins and outs of reading poetry and what the Psalms are. Uh, but for tonight, we're going to see an imaginative meditation on the reality that the poet has observed, that the psalmist has observed in, reality, in, in life, that the inputs of a person are what produce the outputs. He is noticing this on reality, and then he is now putting it to a psalm. In other words, he is meditating on uh, what comes out of a person is a result of what comes into a person. Uh, that, that's less gross than it sounds, uh, so hang in there. Uh, but we're going to see uh, two reflections that the psalmist is going to reflect upon on the inputs of a righteous man and the outputs of a righteous man. So let's think through the inputs of a righteous man. Let's first just read these two verses again here in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So Psalm 1 comes to us as the very first psalm, the very first psalm of 150 of them. It's, and it comes to us as a fork in the road. It comes to us as a decision. There are two paths ahead of you that you must decide. Two ways to live. The way of wisdom, righteousness, and life, or the way of foolishness, the way of wickedness and of death. And it begins with offering the way of blessing. Now, we can tend toward thinking about this psalm and of blessing as kind of like an if-then statement. If you do this, then blessing will come. And that's true, but perhaps not in the way that we mean it. We can tend toward distilling blessing down to like financial or material blessing. Like if I do this, if I am a righteous man, then God will bless me in this way, which sometimes actually happens to the old covenant people of God. But this is still actually how we generally use the word blessed or blessing when we say it as 21st century Americans. Like we rarely, rarely uh, post on social media about our recent job loss. And we make an Instagram post with hashtag blessed victim of financial, or uh, like financial downsizing at my job, right? Uh, isn't it great? God is good, and he has blessed me in this way. Or we very rarely go to like the Christian bookstore and get a blessed bumper sticker when we have just found out that we've been diagnosed with cancer or some other financial difficulty or any number of very real and felt difficulties and struggles in our lives. We rarely think of those things as blessing or the blessed life. But this is exactly what the Psalms are going to comprehensively teach us. Psalm 1 and then next week, Psalm 2, 
are going to act as kind of like a fountainhead for the rest of the Psalms, the way that we are to interpret and read and understand the rest of the Psalms. In so many Psalms, David and others will be crying out to God. David, over and over and over, will ask, how long, O Lord? Like, how long will you allow the wicked to prosper? It seems like when David or other psalmists write these things, they are not being blessed. They are not living a blessed life. But when we read and consider those kinds of very real and raw and felt psalms, we are then meant to flip back to Psalm 1 and remember how this book started. Remember reality. The blessed man is actually blessed when he meditates on the law of the Lord. We'll get there. So if blessing isn't necessarily throughout, comprehensively, throughout the rest of the Psalms, if it isn't necessarily material or physical blessing, what is it? What is the blessed life? What is blessing? Well, the best I can try to define it would be is experiencing life in the way that God intended. Receiving life from the very word, the wisdom, the spirit of God, a blessed life is a flourishing life of contented joy. This is a blessed life. And it actually doesn't need uh, great amounts of financial and material blessing or, or prosperity or any other comes and goes of life. A flourishing, contented joy. Jesus is going to really help us understand this kind of blessing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, but most poignantly in the Beatitudes as he begins his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. These beatitude, blessed people, are experiencing flourishing, joyful, contented lives, while at the exact same time experiencing loss, experiencing persecution even. So how does one receive and experience this kind of blessed life? Well, Psalm 1 begins by describing the way that you don't get it. If you want to get a blessed life, I'll, I'll first start to tell you how you don't, or the way that you shouldn't go. The road, not of blessing, but of death. And this road is of increasing intensity. The way of death, the way of not the blessed flourishing life, is by walking in the counsel of the wicked, is by standing in the, seat, in the way of sinners, and is sitting in the seat of scoffers. That is, accepting the counsel or the advice of those who do not know God, and, and then walking alongside them as we go, walking through life, which then intensifies into uh, becoming like a stopping and a standing. Standing, not just walking and hearing advice as you're walking along through life, but then stopping and having a conversation as you stand there, uh, and, 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 and then even engaging in sinful participation with those that you were walking alongside of, which then hardens into the most dangerous place to be, where you just open your camping chair and sit down on the road and sit in the seat of a scoffer. Like, I ain't moving or I ain't going anywhere else. I'm just going to sit here. All this God talk, all of this wisdom and blessing talk that I used to perhaps once think or believe, all that sin and death stuff, yeah, that's just ridiculous. Man, just, just go ahead and do you, man. Just live your life if God is real, who cares? This kind of scoffing attitude to whether God exists or not, I, it doesn't really make much difference to me. And then not moving. Now, what this is not saying is that people who are wanting to follow God, 
suddenly stop sinning. Like we, we, we hear this kind of like standing in the way of sinners and you're like, oh shoot, well I sinned today. Uh, so this can't be me or something. Or that Christians never hang out with those who are still sinners. Even in my outline headings, you may think that I'm trying to say that when someone becomes a Christian or becomes a serious Christian, this person then, then lives a sinless or righteous life, a perfectly righteous life with never, without ever sinning. Reality is, is that Christians, will continue to think through this, but Christians are still in their sin. We will never, this side of Christ's return, be fully without our sin, but that Christians are on the right road. They are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on their behalf, and his life lived for them, and his death died for them through his resurrection life that then we are united to. And they are indeed made righteous, not by their righteous works, but by Jesus' righteousness on their behalf. And now, then, Christians are walking alongside of Jesus. Having been made righteous by him, they continue to walk with him. And then, even inviting as many as they can alongside of them, out of walking down this other road of wickedness and lifelessness and death, to join them alongside their walk with Jesus. A walk down the flourishing road. The picture that Psalm 1 paints is two ways to live, but maybe the, the two roads to walk down isn't the best picture. The, the way of flourishing life isn't just a one-time fork-in-the-road decision that gets made at a summer camp someday when you're a, a youth high school kid or something, and then for the rest of your life, it's now just you just are on that road. The way of flourishing life is connected to the right sources. It's not necessarily making the right decisions, but it is being connected to the right sources. Rather than being connected to and fed by worldly systems, worldly inputs, wicked, sinful, scoffing voices, a flourishing and a wise man is like a tree. Is like a tree who is connected to the right sources, connected to the right inputs. Living in New Mexico, we are perhaps better equipped to understand uh, this psalm than folks perhaps anywhere else in the country uh, because we don't have trees, very few of them, in fact. Uh, many, many months ago, when we were thinking about the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness, we thought about how our climate is actually very similar to that of Israel or to the land uh, east of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you're from another part of the country, like trees are cool, but they kind of lose their gravitas, right? When it's just, oh look, just another gigantic magnolia tree or another sycamore. Yeah, that's, that's nice. But like for us, that's a big deal, right? So when I ask you to think of the impressive trees in Albuquerque, where, do you, where, do you, where does your imagination go? The Bosque, right? They are, they are the only gigantic trees down by the river, the cottonwoods. We all, those of us who have lived here for some amount of time, all have the exact same trees in our mind. And we think of gigantic, magnificent, flourishing trees. Like if you're up in the heights in the fall, definitely if you ever go to the top of the mountain in the fall, you see that strip of yellow that just cuts the city in half. It's amazing. And you see this strip of brilliant color. Why? Because of life, because of trees. They're, they're just amazing. Those things are massive. 
but why are they there and not anywhere else in the city? Because there's no water in anywhere else in the city. There is access to water that produces, grows, and then sustains these cottonwoods growth, their magnificence. Now, we, we like to think of ourselves as humans, especially as Americans. We like to think of ourselves as like autonomous, independent uh, human beings. Like, I am a rock. I am an island. This, like that, that's like our mantra as Americans. We don't need to be connected to anything else because we are Americans. We are independent. But we human beings, whether we like to admit it or not, we human beings are always connected to. We are always being formed and shaped by the things that we are connected to. There is no such thing as an autonomous human being. And sure, we can think about the beginning of Psalm 1 as the flourishing man who like really doesn't run, run with the wrong crowd. Maybe like you've, you've got a, like a, a, an eighth grade son or something, and he's starting to like run with the wrong friends at school. So you, you open Psalm 1 and read this thing, and like, now Johnny... Don't, don't run with this wrong crowd because blessed is this guy. You don't want to be a tree, don't you? And th- there's some truth to that, right? Like bad company corrupts good morals and all that. And like, man, isn't it so sad that that guy ended up in jail? Like he just couldn't break from his bad friends in high school. And there's some truth to that. But I think it's far more dangerous, especially as Americans. This psalm comes to us to warn us of not necessarily just being connected to the wrong crowd, but being aware of the cultural air that we breathe, the connection, the the systems that are feeding us and shaping us and forming us without us even knowing it, the systems of the world that do not nourish us but leave us as dry, disconnected, withering leaves. So hang in there with me for a second, but uh, many of you have read or uh, listened to This Cultural Moment, a podcast that I've been really uh, influenced by in the last few months, and there's this Australian pastor named Mark Sayers in this podcast, and he says that there are three tanks, three tanks which makes for healthy and human living. Imagine like uh, you have tanks of reservoir, reservoir tanks of water outside your house that you are drawing from. And there are three different tanks that cause a healthy, flourishing human life. And these tanks are freedom, our community, and meaning. Now, North Koreans, people in North Korea, they are filled up. Their, their meaning tank is full, like to the brim. They have a clear purpose and meaning in their life, to live for the state of North Korea and to live for their deified leader. They may even have a semi-full community tank outside the house of their life as they pursue this meaning together. But a North Korean's freedom tank is completely empty. There is no uh, independent choice there. A coerced life is not a happy and a healthy life. But we as Americans, we're essentially opposite from North Koreans. Our freedom tank, that which we are drawing from, uh, is like overflowing. Like just walk into an ice cream shop, or walk into Walmart, or walk into Barnes and Noble, and just be paralyzed by choice. We have so many choices. Like even if you just wanted to run into Barnes and Noble and grab Moby Dick, there's like 
handfuls and handfuls of editions of Moby Dick, and then lots of lots of other books about Moby Dick. Like, should you buy them all? How do you even choose? Should I buy this one or that? I don't know. We are overflowing with freedom. And depending on where we live and the circumstances of our lives, Americans' community tanks are at varying levels, though even that tank is very quickly starting to drain and drain and drain. But the tank that is almost entirely empty is that of meaning. There is no American meaning of life apart from here, if I could distill the, the meaning of life that our, cultural, that our culture tells us, here's the meaning of life. To feel good, to be happy, to have sex, to buy stuff, and to go on vacation. That is the meaning of life. And that is depressing. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but that is, like, seriously, the meaning, American meaning of life, which it has smuggled itself right into our churches and into our hearts. But humans cannot live that way for very long with that sort of shallow meaning, which is one reason why politics has become so polarized, so important to us. We are grasping for a weightier meaning of life that will extend beyond us. More on that next week in Psalm 2. But in all of these meaning inputs, the things that we are trying to draw from, from a virtually empty meaning tank, that of health and sex and stuff and vacations and politics, like how are those actually doing? Like are they actually causing a flourishing life to come? Are any of these inputs actually producing the kind of flourishing life that we would hope that they would produce? Or is the perfectly maintained Instagram exterior just kind of nothing more than a hood cover, just barely keeping in the smoke from the smoking engine. Eventually, it's going to start billowing out as it becomes clear that there is no contented, flourishing life by all of those inputs. We are sucking the meaning tank completely dry, and there is nothing left. And so the old business mantra is true, that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. If you've got a robotic assembly line system that keeps producing cars with three wheels instead of four, well, it was designed to do that. It may be a mistake. Obviously, it's a mistake, but it was designed to make cars with three wheels. This was a system that is perfectly designed to produce what it gets, the results that it gets. If we are living lives that are just cycling from one level of meaningless discontentment to the next, one attempt at meaning to the next. Well, what's the old definition of insanity? Well, doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different result. And yet, we are insane. We keep moving from one thing to the next, hoping that this will be the thing that gives me meaning, that this will be the thing that gives me satisfaction. If you want to change the outputs, then change the inputs. And what are the inputs of the righteous man in Psalm 1? He doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, he doesn't sit in the way of the world, but rather his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He unplugs himself from the wisdom, from the word of the world, and instead he plugs himself into the wisdom and the word of God. The blessed, the, the flourishing man becomes this way with discipline 
because he seeks to know God. So it isn't that Psalm 1 is like an if-then. Like, if you clean up your life and stop sinning so much, then God will bless you. Kind of. It's more if you connect yourself to the life of God. If you are receiving his life, then you automatically, you get blessing. But blessing in the way that the Bible means it. You get a flourishing, joyfully content life. So the Psalm 1 man intentionally says no to other things in his life that might limit, might constrict, or might cut off his long-term flourishing health. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the presence of God is what creates and sustains a flourishing human being. Many, many years ago, I read something that changed the way that I think about how I use Twitter or any other social media. It was something like this. Uh, I couldn't even find this old, old tweet from 10 years ago, but it stayed with me. So something like, when you choose to follow someone on Twitter, you are inviting them to counsel you on what you should think is true, what you should think is valuable or worthwhile. Essentially, you are inviting them to shape what you think is the good life. So, if that's true, every time you follow someone on Twitter, choose wisely. And the same is absolutely true for who you follow on Instagram or on Facebook or on YouTube or on Snapchat or on TikTok or whatever it is, what, what you choose to listen to, what you choose to read, what you choose to watch. These are all inputs on, that are shaping and forming what you think the good life is, what the flourishing human life is, all of it. So choose wisely. Use wisdom with your inputs. Now, this isn't, I'm not trying to tell you like what the shows are on Netflix that you can watch and the shows on Netflix that you can't watch, right? This requires wisdom and it requires community to help us see some of these things that our consciences might not even be bothered by any longer. But every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. How many of the wicked sinful and worldly systems are we plugged into without us even knowing it? You've heard the old story about the fish swimming in the water and he doesn't even know what water is. We're the same way. We don't, we don't know what it is that we are swimming in because it's just, it's everywhere. The inputs produce the outputs. So if these are the inputs of a righteous man, we've already danced around it, but what are the outputs of a righteous man. Secondly, of course it makes sense for people who live in a climate like ours to appreciate the significance of trees, but it's not just this ancient Hebrew environment that would cause a psalmist to write about trees here. Trees throughout the Bible are one of the most important things. After human beings and God, trees are easily the second most referenced living thing in the Bible. They are all over the Bible. We know of trees' importance from the very first three chapters of the Bible, when humanity lives in a garden with many trees, but then our attention is drawn and pointed to two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What isn't so clear, though, perhaps as we do a quick cursory read-through of Genesis or of the rest of the Old Testament, is the way that we are meant to actually kind of think of humans like we think of trees. 
In days three and six of creation, both trees and humans emerge from the ground. In Genesis and then in the Exodus narratives, humans not only will again and again relive and relive the the fall narrative of Genesis 3, people will over and over and over again throughout the biblical narrative see and take just like Eve did time and time again. But humanity itself actually becomes trees. They, they become likened to trees. Adam and Eve are planted in the garden, as God would later also say in Exodus 15 that he will do with Israel in the new garden of the land of his presence. He's going to plant them. Throughout the Proverbs, Lady Wisdom and those who are righteous are thought of and as, are described as trees with abundant fruit. Will humans... Will God's people act as trees of abundant blessing to the world? Or will they act as curse? Will they bring death because of their grasping of the knowledge of the world instead of receiving the wisdom of God? The psalmist here in Psalm 1, perhaps reflecting on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is considering a huge, well-watered, well-nourished tree of life. Like, you think the cottonwoods by the Rio Grande are impressive. Like, consider the trees in in Eden, watered and surrounded by four rivers, and not with any of them, like with a Cochiti Dam upriver or something to, like, stifle the flow. Uh, These are huge, well-watered trees. And God has created humanity to be just like them, to be his delegated sub-rulers, his conduits of grace and peace to a desolate an empty land, his trees of abundance to feed and shade and protect the land. And so humans, as trees, perhaps even especially in the book of Isaiah, uh, will be continued to be uh, compared to trees. God has planted his people in Isaiah as a vineyard, but because of their idolatry, because of the inputs of a thousand other gods and a thousand other cultural aspirations, their outputs— The outputs of the people are all sour and are all bad. The people have rejected their vocation and they live for themselves. They are not the blessed man fed by God's word and presence, but they walk in the way of the wicked. They stand in the place of sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers, Israel does, over and over and over again throughout their history. So that when Isaiah rolls around, the... Israel is essentially like, yeah, maybe the creator, of the, God, the creator God of the world and of our lives has spoken, but I really don't care enough to find out what he said. Or I know what he has said, but I will still choose to live as if he hasn't. Or there is no God and I hate him. And so what does God promise through Isaiah? He says he's going to cut off the vine, to cut off the tree, so that all that is left of Israel is a stump. The Psalm 1 man of Israel is no more. It looks as if Genesis to Isaiah has failed. God's plan for the world has failed. But the story in Isaiah doesn't end there. Isaiah looks forward to a day when this will happen in chapter 11. Listen to this. This is something that you hear a lot around Christmas time. Perhaps now with Psalm 1 tree language bouncing around in your head, listen to this, where God promises in chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, 
And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord shall come upon him. Adam, to this day in Israel, has failed in their vocation, and God has cut them off. But a new tree is coming from the stump. A tree that isn't just healthy and producing and flourishing, like a tree of life for moments in time. But throughout his entire life, this tree will come to feed and to shade and protect. He is the human, the tree that every human was intended to be. What you and I were intended to be. His entire existence is the Psalm 1 blessed man, the flourishing man. But then, in the cosmic irony of all ironies, what happens to this Psalm 1 man? this Psalm 1 tree. Humanity had already rejected their role, and now they reject him as well. How? By hanging him on a tree. In Hebrew, there aren't different words for tree and wood. So like if I have a fireplace and I want to get it going, I will throw some tree into the fire. And so the tree that humanity was always intended to be now finally comes and then is hung and killed on the cross of a tree. Jesus comes to his own Adam moment of testing at a tree, and unlike any other human before him, he perfectly hears and obeys the divine voice instead of his own. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. The tree, the first place of curse for humanity, becomes the place of blessing for humanity. So Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The place of the tree, the place of our failure, becomes the place of victory because of what Jesus has done to forgive sins, to bring healing. And so the cross, the tree, becomes the place of decision for humanity. The cross stands as the fork in the road for the rest of our lives. Two ways to live. It becomes the Eden tree for all of us. Will we come to Jesus as our tree of life? His life for ours. His death for ours. Will we hear from God the truth of our sin, the truth of our failure? Will we come to the place of grace and of healing? Or will we walk past that tree of life and instead move on to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, taking and eating the good life that we think the world has has to offer, even though deep down we know the end result will be no different than before. We keep taking the same fruit and hope this time for a different result. But like I said earlier, the Christian life is not just a one-and-done decision at a fork in the road. It is, the Christian life, that of daily renewal, of being watered, of being nourished, of being grown by him, In fact, Jesus even takes the Psalm 1 imagery and then reshapes it in John 15, where he says that left to ourselves, we can never be the Psalm 1 tree. Instead, Jesus comes calling, saying, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, I am the tree, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Apart from me, you can never be the Psalm 1 man. Left to ourselves, we will always be like detached chaff blown in the wind. Detached leaves just tumbling down the sidewalk, brittle, of no use, and then just blown into judgment. But attached to Jesus, when the Word, when the Spirit, when the presence of God flows into his people, becomes the the sap of our spiritual health, of daily attaching and reattaching ourselves to the tree so that the life of Christ is now coursing through us, the branches, in a way that Paul can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like, when does the tree start or stop and the branches begin? It's hard to say. And so it should be with us. Where does Jesus end and Dave Ortega begin? I don't know. That's just Jesus's life coursing through him. Oftentimes we can be unintentionally or even intentionally, though, pulling ourselves off the vine, pulling ourselves off the tree with just like a thread still connecting ourselves to the tree and then be frustrated or even be angry at our lack of joy. But every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Praise God for grace that apart from our greatest efforts of pulling ourselves away, he will hold us fast. And yet the way to a blessed, flourishing life is to grab hold of him as he has grabbed hold of us. The Christian life is a life of deeply rooted connectedness. And that's not to say that life connected to the Psalm 1 Jesus man won't be difficult or hard. In fact, Jesus promises it will be difficult and hard. But just like go down to the Bosque and ask the branches if every day is easy as the, the day before it. Like there are days of scorching heat. There are days of freezing cold. There are days of my children like bouncing on branches and like beetles and fungus and stuff that can get into the tree. Sometimes there are seasons of no growth, but what does Jesus say about times of no growth? In John 15, that the Father will prune, and he will prune, and he will prune so that we will experience the life of Christ and again be fruitful. And as I've once heard someone say, it is difficult sometimes difficult to tell the difference between God making us really fruitful and nearly killing us. But take heart, he only prunes what is productive. The Christian life can be hard, but it is a life intended for flourishing, for the life of God in his people. This is why Psalm 1 is just absolutely incredible. It was incredible for some Jewish songwriter to think about and write as a meditative reflection, but this side of the cross, it's even more incredible for us to just go further up and further in into this life of the tree. That on this side of the cross, we, or on that side of the cross, we might be tempted to say and come to the conclusion, like, I just got to try harder to be the righteous man. I've just got to be more obedient to the law. But on this side of the cross, we can say, praise God that Jesus was righteous and that Jesus was obedient to the law. Praise God that Jesus is the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He is like a tree planted by streams of waters. He yields fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither. In all that Jesus does, he prospers. And now on this side of the cross, all that is his, now by daily faith and being attached to him, all that is his is now mine. Praise God. 
What a life he has given to his people. The life of flourishing. So in just a minute, after we have come to the table, we're going to sing a song that we just sang a few weeks ago, but we just had to sing it again because it's just, it's too perfect. But we're going to sing perhaps tonight this first verse with new eyes, with, with new loves, and perhaps with new inputs. Consider these words, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, not, not I, just some leaf tumbling down the sidewalk by itself, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So this psalm is opening, it's like a wardrobe door into Narnia. This psalm is meant for us to just now, that we have considered, now meditate on and just explode into life in our imaginations this week. Perhaps you might memorize it uh, and carry it with you for the rest of your life. Uh, Do that this week. And then perhaps even before uh, next Sunday, take a look at Psalm 2. We're going to continue to think about our King Jesus and meditate in our imaginations and in our hearts and our souls and our minds. Let's pray for God's help this week. Oh God, we pray that you would give us the faith to grab more tightly on to Jesus, our tree, the vine. Might we be branches that are filled with his life, that your presence, your spirit, your word, your wisdom might be coursing through our lives, that we would seek with wisdom to be seeking the inputs of your word in our life to be shaped and formed into people who would live and love like Jesus, that you would make clear to us the inputs of this world that are shaping us and forming us in ways that you would not have for us, that are actually squelching our joy, that are cutting us off from the flourishing life. Help us to be wise and to see with discernment. Help us encourage one another in this as we go. That we pray for our lives individually and together, that we would be a community of the flourishing life of Christ, that we might say with Paul, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We pray this by faith in what you have done for us in the cross of Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.